Hi everyone, this is Barry Robison. Welcome to the Vandal Science Experience, where we take an irreverent and lighthearted but in-depth look at the students who perform undergraduate research here at the University of Iowa. There's so much science in this podcast, you're gonna die. On this episode of the Vandal Science Experience. For the particular strain of Chinook that I'm working with, they can detect a loss of day length. That is what ultimately tells them as we get maturing. And so our hypothesis is that if we take away that detection of loss of day length, they'll instead divert their energy away from reproduction and put it towards growth. Hey everyone, welcome to the Vandal Science Experience. We're coming to you from the cozy confines of the University of Idaho Library. Today, Nick Hoffman, right? Yes. Who is, I guess in, in the short version, is single-handedly saving all of the salmon. We've, that's what we have you down for? Yes. Right? You're saving all of them. Every single one. Nice. No pressure. I would like to know, where are you from? Where you, where'd you grow up? Okay, uh, so I originally, I guess you could say I originated from the Midwest. You originated? can say that actually. but but um i typically claim idaho is my home state uh, why is that well just we uh my family traveled out to the west when i was fairly young okay. and was here when i was five or six so that's your i know you're in idaho so yeah. i technically i can get away with where in the midwest let's at least pay lip service to <laughs> we, we we come from iowa oh small, so small town in iowa yeah, cut yeah. that out we'll cut that out later right <laughs> We're going to cut out the Iowa bits. I hate to tell you. Okay. So you were born in Idaho. That's yes. Good. In Twin Falls. In Twin Falls. Yes. Okay. And then somehow you ended up up here in Moscow. So here. you're literally, <laughs> literally right now you're physically located. In, yeah. And so let's talk about that transition. How did you end up at the University of Idaho uh, after being starting out in Twin Falls? Go. <laughs> it's tell me the thing. <laughs> um, so I took a pretty unconventional route. To get here into the University of Idaho, that's for sure. But um, any route that starts with Iowa. <laughs> yeah, you can say that. And I had, had a little bit of a lack of focus in high school and actually ended up not completing high school and getting my GED. And complete foolish decision on my part and much to the dismay of my parents. Um, but you it were, happened. And, look, uh, and I would like you to know that you are literally the only teenage boy ever <laughs> in the history of teenage boys to make foolish decisions. <laughs> it's completely unique to you. Um, anyway, so after I got my GED, I went to a trade school because I, you know, I had to, I had to get a job. And um, so I became a licensed uh, HVAC technician and for a couple of years worked on heating and air conditioners and quickly found out that standing outside in the freezing cold weather on top of a roof um, playing with electricity was not very much fun. And <laughs> it could be tons of fun and, very briefly, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fun to sort of learn about, you know, electricity and fixing um, components and heating and air conditioning systems and that sort of thing. That was all great, but I knew that I didn't want to do it forever. And so I started taking uh, nighttime classes at the College of Southern Idaho and uh, mostly focused in uh, on my associates in biology. And um, while taking part-time classes at CSI, I had heard about a job as a laboratory technician um, with the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. 
physician was or a laboratory tech, a genetics laboratory tech. And through some sort of family connections, um, ended up getting that job and worked there. Ended up working there for about five and a half years. So where is technician. there? Uh, this facility is um, in Hagerman, Idaho, oh, which is see. a 30 minute drive from so, Twin Falls. Okay, so literally at the, the Critvik part of the Hagerman Fish Culture Experiment Station. Yes. Which is a piece of the University of Idaho. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's important to note that, okay. yes, yeah. the university has collaborated with yeah. Krivik at that facility. So. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me, let me um, back you up just one sec before you keep going. Okay. So um, you decided somehow to pursue an associate's in biology or biological sciences. Yes. So why that choice? Like what? That, that had to stem from my experience um, growing up, going camping and, and being in being in the wilderness, being out fishing and that sort of thing as a child and going on these trips with my, with my family. Uh, I imagine that's that's where my interest um, from biology stemmed from and continues to stem from. Yeah. Okay, so you had this affinity for the life sciences from the, your interests when you were younger and so you sort of found this opportunity in, in the genetics lab. That's a pretty sophisticated leap from yeah. taking night classes yes. to being a genetics lab tech. So yes. what, what my, kind boss, of my boss took quite a risk hiring me, that's for sure, as someone yeah. with no laboratory experience um, prior to that. It was, Experience it was, is good. Pretty lucky to land that. Attitude is, is a real important thing. So, Okay, so tell me a little bit about that job before we move on from there. So that job was fantastic. I would say my, my time spent there really sort of jolted me into wanting to continue my career here at the University of Idaho. While there, um, I... Only did I gain valuable experience in the lab, but I was constantly pestering the scientists that worked there, the, the other geneticists and my co-workers, about the different projects that they had going on and the things that they were involved with as far as, um, you know, the, the lab's main focus was on using genetic tools to sort of monitor and assess stocks and populations of different salmonids or salmon species in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and... Being a, a big fly fisherman that liked to chase these fish around, I took particular interest in the the effort to uh, the conservation effort that was going on at that particular facility. And you know, so directly directly talking to the the research scientists there that were doing amazing work is sort of what you know jolted me into wanting to come up here. But what I want to know, so you worked there for like four or five years, you said five and a half. Five and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. What did you do though? Like, were you extracting DNA? Were you right. processing fin clips? Like, what were you doing? I was I was generating genotype data, so I was extracting DNA from tissue samples, um, both DNA and RNA from a variety of different tissue samples. And um, you know, no big deal, as one does <laughs> straight out of a career in HVAC technology. Yes. You know, I'll just extract this RNA today. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to work for such a great yeah. organization down there that, you know, it gave me an opportunity to take my time, not necessarily take my time, but it gave me a chance to sort of become accustomed to grow into the position. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, like, so, beginning so I mean, this is, this is a very <laughs> unconventional sort of, of path. I mean, but you end up uh, taking some classes, you end up in this pretty high-tech lab. I mean, they have a very state-of-the-art facility down there. Yeah. You're doing all this cool stuff. You're getting exposed to sort of thinking um, related to salmonic conservation and all of those kinds of things. Okay. Then I enjoyed the work that I was doing there. Yeah. But I was looking at all these, you know, people that were analyzing the data and actually conducting the research that, you know, that they were using the data that I was generating and, and trying to answer specific questions about conservation. That's 
what I really wanted to do. Uh, you got the itch. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, you know, I had, had some fear about making that, that leap as far as, you know, I, I know that I wouldn't have been able to have that position with an associate's degree in right. biology. So I was going to have to go further in my education. And, and I had some fear about doing that. And it and if it wasn't for, you know, um, my boss at that time, um, Sean Narum, and his encouragement and sort of his mentorship, I don't think I would have ever made that leap. And, you know, I've I have him to thank for that and support my family also as well. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for those, for those people, I don't think I would have made the leap to come up here to the university and so continued my education. It's interesting. I mean, the, the words that you're using are quite striking, even if I don't think you realize, I mean, this leap, you talk about it like this is a literal leap in your mind. I mean, not literal in terms of you're physically jumping from Hagerman, Idaho to Moscow, but, you know, like it's a gigantic transition. Yes. And so you enrolled in the university to get an undergraduate degree. Yes. In what? In fisheries resources. Okay. So I was in the College of Natural Resources. So you got a, a degree, is it uh Fisheries and wildlife or something? What is Fisheries it? resources. Fisheries resources. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And then what? Um, well, I mean, so as, a, as an undergrad, I was fortunate how it worked because Andrew Pierce, who is actually a Crippic employee, is uh -huh. stationed here at the University of Idaho uh -huh. through the collaboration. So I kind of had a, had a connection up here, and I was able to get a job in his laboratory working as an undergraduate. All right. So, okay, I get it now. So you, you're getting a degree in fisheries, but, I mean, Andy, who is in his office, is up in my building in the Department of Biology, but yeah. you, you know, now I see the connection. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what were you doing for Andy then? Um, his, his lab is focused more on the physio physiology side, and, mm -hmm. um, and so that was, that was really new to me coming from a sort of a genetic background. But his, his work is looking at reproductive physiology in Chinook salmon. Okay, so before you launch into kind of the, the stuff that you were doing with Andy and stuff like that, I would like you to kind of take a step back and and talk about the problems that people like Andy and Sean and you now are trying to solve, the big picture why of this research. The importance of the research that's ongoing for the conservation of uh, different salmon species is because there, many of the populations are currently listed as endangered or, or threatened due to many different human activities. And it's too bad because a lot of people like having this fish in the river, like having these uh, salmon species in the river. People like to fish for them. Me, generally, yeah. Barry likes to fish for them. <laughs> there. Well, you said you did. I, I fly for sure. Yeah, I'm a yeah. fanatic. Yeah, I'm a fly fishing fanatic, and and love going out and chasing these fish around. So, uh, are you any so good at it though? I can show you some pictures after the podcast. Okay. It, it is a probably it is an auditory sure. medium. So <laughs> pictures aren't really the right kind of evidence yeah. for our listener. Yeah. Okay, keep going. I keep interrupting you. That's okay. Salmon in general have a huge, you know, social and economic value. To people all the way on the Pacific Coast, from California all the way up to Alaska, they're a way of life, way for people to generate income, and especially in the Native American community, you know, salmon is a part of their first food, and so they have. A significant amount of value in the Native American communities. And so it's too bad that we see continue to see decline in um, salmon populations. And so that's why I feel like the work that, you know, the lab I worked in prior, uh, Sean, Sean Aram and those guys are working in, and Andrew Pierce in the lab I'm currently in, is that's why I feel like the work we're doing is so important. Yeah, I, I mean, I 100% agree. It's one of my favorite things to do is go fishing, and it makes me sad because I know fishing ain't as good as it used to be, and, right? I mean, they're on the decline, and yeah. it's a real, it's a real bummer. It's not just a cliche to say that anymore. It's, no. That's the truth. Sure. 
And the other thing that I keyed in on when you were talking about the value of these animals, right? you don't mean money when no. you talk about value. There, there are some economic value, yes, but, but I think more importantly is just the social value. Yeah. Maybe uh, personally, let me give you an example. I, I, going fishing is sort of therapeutic for me. Yep. I, I go in to cancel out the noise of, of the world, basically. When I go out, yeah, I'm in a, a beautiful place and in a beautiful, pristine water and fishing for this uh, magnif- magnificent, <laughs> this beautiful species. I it's think been, I said beautiful yeah. like, a million times. <laughs> Sorry about that. But they truly are beautiful. But yeah, yeah and I think a lot of people feel like, yeah. feel that way. Yeah. And, right? The yeah. value that you're talking about yeah. is transcends dollars. Right. I, I think it's part mind. of the culture of Idaho. Right. And, All right. I mean, that's good. To me, like, that's one of the coolest pieces of your story and what you were working on mm-hmm. is that you're working on this problem that a lot of people in the state care a lot about. It's really, really important. Okay, so now you're the man. We've established at the beginning of the podcast episode you're going to single-handedly save all of the sand. <laughs> so if you could just lay out your sort of what is like a four-point plan for doing that, that now is the time in the podcast for you to do that. I want to know. I want to know what your piece of the puzzle is, right? So I'm, I'm kind of joking about you saving the sand. Not kind of. I'm totally joking about you single-handedly saving the sand. Okay, so my piece that you're that you're referring to yeah. is that I'm trying to reduce the occurrence of juvenile males, um, Chinook salmon, from maturing at an age um, that's much earlier than what you would call your typical male Chinook salmon. And we're doing that by rearing juvenile fish under um, a continuous light treatment. Okay, so before we get into the how you're doing it, okay. why don't we guide everybody that's listening through the sort of the why they care like, how does this early maturation problem in Chinook oh. fit into this conservation issue? That's, we... prob- that's probably good to explain. Yeah. So... <laughs> it's almost as though I thought this through. Yeah. Okay, so because of the decline in, in Chinook salmon populations that we kind of got to earlier in the podcast, there's this push for conservation of these species through special kind of hatcheries that are, are rearing wild fish in these hatchery facilities. And an issue that these conservation hatcheries are facing is they're producing a large number of what they term mini jacks, which are, are just male Chinook salmon that becomes fully sexually mature at age two instead of a typical fish that mature at age maybe four or five. Right. And so the issue with these, these mini jacks is if you have a high proportion of these fish in your population, they typically, well, first of all, they don't survive well in between spawning season. They just have poor survivability, and this has been shown by previous research that's been done. And so if you have many of these particular fish in a population, and and a lot of them are dying in between spawning season, it kind of disrupts the ecological balance, the the sex ratios on the spawning grounds. You know, there's a low number of males on the spawning grounds and a high number of females, and there's essentially not enough males to spawn with females. This ultimately lowers the amount of offsprings that are produced um, each year, and and there's and so, just fewer salmon too, right? right just I mean, if a bunch of them are maturing early and dying, absolutely, they're and, just fewer of them. And, and so these hatcheries are throwing money into producing fish that have, you know, no impact on increasing salmon abundances in our river. Yeah, that's yeah. bad. Okay, that's, I get it. That's not good. No, <laughs> <laughs> it can be as high as seventy percent of 
fish that are totally released from some of these hatcheries. And it's a significant problem. I mean, I know mathematicians. They're they're pretty interested in solving. (laughs) And so you've sort of laid out why it's a problem. Does does your your colleagues, your field, do do you have a feel of mechanistically why this is happening? Why so many of them are maturing early? Yeah, so the the main purpose of these hatcheries are, are to give the best chance of these juvenile fish to survive mm-hmm. and so what they do is they feed them quite a bit of food while they're while they're in the hatchery and this with the hopes that they'll use this the excess energy from the food to put towards um, migrational behavior like growth, things, growth energy, and yeah. just yeah. their ability to survive in yeah. hostile environments makes sense but what they're finding is that instead of using it for that they're they're using this excess energy and diverting it into reproduction instead and so they're not exactly doing what they would expect them to do. Okay. And now you are setting up some experiments to try to test possible solutions to this problem? Yep. All I've right. Got, I've got an ongoing... Here we go. Here comes the four-step plan. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I've, I've got a current research project going on that uh, began in, Ju- in June of this year, June 20... Or I'm sorry, last year, June 2019. Yeah. Um, so we are looking into how fish kind of cue in on seasonal changes in daylight and how they use that cue in change of day length to and how that's incorporated their decision to become sexually mature or not they're sort of genetically predisposed to spawn at a particular time of the year so that their offspring are born into an environment that give them the best chance of survival right okay. so yeah. they they can detect when that time of the year is all right and okay so i think that was about the 17th time i interrupted you so welcome to the Barry Interrupts the Guest podcast. Okay, so so you're you're setting up some experiments that are gonna try to come up with some ways to change that dial a little bit when they when they decide in quotation marks to divert energy in, into an area where it's not consistent with the goals of the conservation. Right. Okay, so tell us about this secret four step plan. <laughs> okay, so um, for the particular strain of Chinook that I'm working with, they can detect a loss of day length. And that is what ultimately tells them as we get maturing. And so our hypothesis is that if we take away that detection of loss of day length, they'll instead divert their energy away from reproduction and put it towards growth. We're rearing these fish under 24 hours of light. So oh. essentially the light will never shut off and they will continue to grow for roughly a year or so. And until I think like April is our final sampling point, and at which point we'll address um, maturity status of, of the fish and okay. be able to determine if the experiment was successful. So, All right, and so I think you said in April of this year is yep. your final sampling. Mm-hmm. And where are you, your, these experiments are happening now? Yes. And, and yeah. where, like physically? They're happening here on campus. Um, they are housed at the Aquaculture Research Institute. In the new building or the old building? They're in the, the old building. Yeah. Okay, so discuss the treatments, Nick. <laughs> okay, so I forgot to mention that a part of this experiment is we want to determine what time of the year would be best oh, to, to start this blast of daylight. Right, right. Oh. And so we started one group in June on the summer solstice, and we came up we came up with a start day because on the summer solstice, right, it's a significant pagan holiday, and you, <laughs> you wanted to well, roll well, with that. Well, no, it. that's when you I begin to see sort of an increase or a decrease in, in day. Right? Right? Uh, so at that point, they if we were to start them in, on the summer solstice, those fish have never seen any decrease in, in day length. 
So that's why we picked. So that would be one of our treatments. Or gotcha. Is one of our treatments are the fish that began receiving 24 hours of light in June, and then we have a, another treatment still 24 hours of light that began in August on the fall equinox, and that was just about we, that time was picked because that's about the time that this population in the wild would typically begin maturing, and so okay. that was why that was selected. And then we have a control group. So we can compare whether the experiment is successful. And they just see a normal day-length cycle that's matched to the Moscow calendar. How many animals are in this study? Like, like what's your sample size? Uh, we have roughly roughly 100 fish in each tank. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you are done, and um, it sounds like it would be about a year-long study then, right? I mean, it, the yep. solstice, you're going you're gonna to go from solstice to solstice, it sounds like, June. Yeah. And then you're going to sample the fish. What kinds of things are you going to measure to try to see if there was an effect? So we're we're particularly interested in the males because this mini jack problem is specifically a male issue. Yeah. And so we're going to measure uh, levels of 11 keto testosterone, mm-hmm. which is the main sex hormone or yeah. androgen involved in reproductive development in male fish. And so we will compare levels of 11 keto testosterone, and that will give us a kind of an idea on how far along or how mature that fish at that time point and compare them across treatments. And that's just a blood sample? Yes. Measuring blood? Yep. And then yep. you presumably measure how big they are and, and those kinds of right. things as well. Right. We're also interested in what sort of impact the experiment has on overall growth rates mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. growth potentials. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm super intrigued. I think you're doing a really very interesting experiment that has the potential to have really actionable results that can change how multiple tens of millions of dollars are spent every year in this state, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if your experiments work out the way your hypothesis predicts, it has the potential to have a really, really big positive impact. That's really cool. So, um, what... What's the end game here? What's you know you're gonna graduate? You're gonna have hopefully one or two really cool publications, and and then what? What do you want to do? I I want to continue working with trying to use scientific you know research to answer these questions on you know issues related to conservation of threatened fish species. That's ultimately what I'm passionate about. and want to continue doing for the rest of my career. All right, let's uh, let's go out on uh, let's say one nice thing about Iowa. <laughs> Um, nah, uh, <laughs> the football yeah. team did pretty good this year. Oh wow! Oh, you, you put it right in the <laughs> put the knife right in the heart. And, oh jeez! All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming. Yeah, your thank work you. Is thank really you cool. so much for having me on. And your story is really me. cool. Yeah. I think uh, I'm excited to see how it turns out. Yeah, me too. All right, we're gonna cut this. That's it for this episode of the Vandal Science Experience. Make sure you join us again next month of the science with three exclamation points.